It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Alan Dershowitz, in a matter of moments, to put in perspective the big case everybody's talking about and the uh, the hopes the other three have for getting out without prison time, which I think are slim. Uh, Jamie Metz will be with us, too, senior fellow with Atlantic Council, uh, one shared, and uh, also, uh, he's a he's a advisor to the World Health Organization. Jamie Metzl is going to be here talking about this thing called the pandemic, the coronavirus, and how it started. It seems that Wuhan Lab has a lot of people intrigued, except for I don't know the mass media and those who are afraid of China don't seem to want to ask any tough questions. That's not the problem here. So we have a lot to discuss. Don't want to uh, keep Alan Dershowitz waiting. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Do you know that uh, Gallup says that 69% of black voters support voter ID and 75% of voters overall? Sir, I'm among those who support voter ID. I've never objected to voter ID. So you agree with voter ID in some circumstances and not in others? That's not what I've said, sir. Senator Cornyn and Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams finally being called on the carpet for talking about Jim Crow 2.0 voting laws. Abrams asked to defend her Crow comments about the Georgia election law and boycotts called on Home Depot because they're not supporting the Georgia election outrage. Time to take a stand. Number two. I hope that the, the gaggle of media at the White House will ask Kamala Harris why she killed police reform last summer. Tim Scott met with her and she got up and would not negotiate because the issue is more important to her than the solution. Amazing. President Biden, VP Harris, former President Obama react to Derek Chauvin's verdict and believe America a racist country. Isn't that nice? I don't. And we're uh, I don't, by the way. And maybe you don't, too. And where are these beliefs when Obama was president? Where were these beliefs when Joe Biden went to the Senate in the 70s? Number one. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count one, <laughs> unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. Count two, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. Count three, second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, find the defendant guilty. Came back in a day. Guilty on all counts. Derek Chauvin spent the night in jail and possibly the rest of his life. And do you think the protests and Maxine Waters' threats virtually guarantee the conviction? I do. What does it mean for an appeal in future cop-involved cases? I mean, this looked like a layup. Derek Chauvin looked as guilty to the pedestrian like me who might be eligible for the jury, but not to try the case. I don't have the legal background. Uh, But not all cases are going to be this uh, black and white, which doesn't mean it's prevented from an effective appeal. Professor Alan Dershowitz joins us now, uh, the author of bo- many books, including Guilt by Accusation, The Challenge of Proving Innocence, in the Age of Hashtag Me Too. Uh, Professor, welcome back. Well, thanks. It's always a pleasure to be on your show. Such well, intelligent talk. Well, I, that, that's an honor here coming from you, considering uh, where you grew up, even though it was Brooklyn, but what you learned from and the people you taught. Professor, what is the takeaway yesterday for you? Takeaway is uh, President Biden said this jury was under extraordinary pressure, which means they understood that if they did not convict on the top charge of murder, 
they would be responsible for causing riots and violence, which might come back and haunt them. It might affect their businesses, their home, their children, their schools. Every mayor in every big city understood that if the jury didn't come back with a verdict of guilty for murder, there'd be riots. Every police chief, everybody with any common sense was preparing for violence in the event that the jury returned a verdict other than murder. Can you really believe that the jurors were insulated from that reality? Do you really think the jurors decided this case without consciously or unconsciously knowing that without the, quote, right verdict, as President Biden put it, there would be violence and they would be responsible for it. Why do you think the judge created an anonymous jury? Because he knew that these jurors would be under extraordinary pressure, but he failed to sequester the jury. And that was an unconstitutional action that denied Chauvin a fair trial. So I think this conviction should be reversed. And I predict that it might very well be reversed, not by the Minnesota high courts, but by the United States Supreme Court, which may look at this issue and say it's about time that we required sequestration of juries in cases like this, because this is an issue that will only get worse. Look what's going on now in Brooklyn Center. You have a woman, 27-year-old, 27-year police veteran with an almost perfect record who makes a terrible, tragic mistake. She pulls out her revolver instead of her taser and shoots and kills uh, somebody who shouldn't have been shot at. She's now being prosecuted for a crime that didn't occur. It's simply not a crime to make an honest mistake like that. And yet there's enormous pressure to convict her, put her in jail, and it will probably happen. She is being railroaded for a crime that she did not commit. So This is a systemic problem now in the United States, a problem of jurors being influenced by outside sources and the Supreme Court of the United States. You know, I heard it address that problem. I even heard last night this guy, Hawk Newsom, who is uh, the the one who runs the Black Lives Matter chapter uh, in New York, said just having protests is not good enough. We have to show that uh, the anger and the violence. That's what got this verdict. I mean, that's basically the takeaway from a lot of people who were destroying dollar stores and ransacking buildings for the past year. Well, I think the message got to the jury. Uh, I can't believe that jurors, consciously or unconsciously, were not worried about their own safety. And uh, when jurors begin to worry about whether or not a verdict is going to impact their own lives, that's not trial by jury. That's not the rule of law. That's the passion of crowds, and that will destroy our jury system unless something is done about it. And the fact that the president of the United States acknowledged that the jury was under this extraordinary pressure, every mayor, every police chief understood that, I would think that appellate courts would have to understand it as well. The president's a lawyer. I mean, doesn't he know this? Then don't you guys teach this? Of course we do, and we teach cases, cases, many of them growing out of the Deep South, when the Klan— used to do exactly what Maxine Waters did. Now, of course, her motives are good and the Klan's motives were bad. But they would organize demonstrations outside of courthouses demanding that jurors acquit all white people and convict all black people in racially charged cases. And and the Supreme Court reversed a number of those cases. And uh, it reversed the Shepard case just in the last uh, 50 or so years. Now, every few generations... The Supreme Court will take a case like that 
and we'll send a message. And the message here has to be sequestration and postponement and changing of venue in any case where the jury could even could be influenced by outside forces. So Arthur Idella, I know a guy you are a fan of. He was on with us yesterday, yep. and he said to me, don't be surprised if it was money-related. It cost a lot of money to put up in secure locations these juries as, or even to, to move it. the venue. But is, could, does you money ever figure money. into this, though? Does money figure into it? Of course. It? It's not only money. It's convenience. It's cumbersomeness. Uh, and jurors don't like to be sequestered. So, you know, it's a double-edged sword, but you got to do it. It was done in the OJ case. It was done in so many other cases. It should become routine. The worst thing is the combination of telling a juror that they're in danger so their names are going to be kept anonymous, but we're not going to sequester you so you can learn specifically about the dangers and threats and let that influence your verdict. That is a combination that's deadly to the rule of law. Professor Alan Dershowitz with us now. Professor, what about the other three officers? Uh, they're going to be tried now. And um, knowing that this, the way this case went and the passion that are in the streets right now, what do you think it means for them? Well, first of all, their lawyers have to make a very strong motion for sequestration. And if they lose that motion, they should take a mandamus right now up to the Court of Appeals saying, look, it was a mistake not to sequester in the Chauvin case, it will compound that mistake if you don't sequester in our case. It may be too little too late because jurors who would be seated in the case involving the other defendants already heard about Maxine Waters and Al Sharpton and uh, Crump and others who have, you know, made these implicit threats. So it may be too little too late, but uh, I wouldn't be betting a lot of money on an acquittal in the cases or in a fair trial for these three defendants or for um, Kim Potter in the in the railroading case she's facing in uh, Brooklyn Center. Uh, so why don't you think the judge saw why don't you think the judge just uh, dismissed the case after uh, after Maxine Waters came out and did what she did? Can you imagine the reaction if the judge dismissed the case? There would be violence. His house would be attacked. He would be threatened. He didn't have the courage to do it. What he did is he passed the buck on to the Court of Appeals. He said, all right, you know, six months from now, when the passions have cooled, maybe you guys will reverse the conviction, but don't ask me to do it. My God, it would affect my life dramatically. Everybody would blame it on me, not Congresswoman Waters. And he was, I mean, he was correct about that. He was wrong not to grant the mistrial. He should have. And he will, I hope and, and believe, may very well be reversed for not sequestering the jury. That was a terrible, terrible mistake in this case. Professor, in your estimation, are we a, are we a racist country? Is there systematic racism ruling our country? We have a country that was born of racism, that had racism all through my growing up. Um, we had systematic racism in police activities, uh, in charging decisions. I think we're improving tremendously. I think we're a much, much better country than we were when I grew up. Uh, I grew up not only with systematic racism, I grew up with systematic anti-Semitism. I was first in my class at Yale Law School, editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Journal, Supreme Court law clerk, turned down 32 out of 32 Wall Street firms that wouldn't hire Jews, wouldn't hire ethnic Catholics, wouldn't hire blacks, wouldn't hire anybody but white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. So we have a history of bigotry and racism, but we're overcoming it. We're doing such a good job. It seems to me the decision to elect an African-American president uh, was such a major step forward 
And what we're seeing now with jury verdicts, it's hard to now say that we are still what we were uh, many years ago. So I wouldn't use that term. But the African-American president uses that term now. He didn't use it in office. Well, it's become a popular term. And if you don't use it, you could get fired. Remember, too, that the executive of Brooklyn um, uh, County, whatever it's called, um, got fired for saying that uh, Kim Potter ought to get due process. And people are being fired from universities today for saying that there's no systemic racism or for saying that uh, you know, other things that undercut the currently identity politics narrative. So it's having an enormous impact on free speech. I have a book just came out yesterday called The Case Against the New Censors, How to Fight Back Against Big Tech Corporations, um, uh, Progressives, and Universities. And so this is also part of cancel culture and, and what we're seeing, suppression of free speech. You cannot today. I will be attacked and criticized for what I said on your show, for, what, for challenging the verdict in this case. That will become politically incorrect. And probably if I were applying for a job now teaching at a major law school, the fact that I challenged this verdict would be held against me. It's got to disturb you. And lastly, you, you have a big sense of uh, Israel and their welfare. This Iranian deal in Vienna, after the explosion in the Natanz that Israelis basically admitted they were behind, that's got to concern you. That this administration seems to be punting on the Abraham Accords and going all in on this terrorist regime. Well, I hope that's not right. I mean, I hope they will continue the Abraham Accords. And I hope that if they do make a deal, it will be an enforceable one. Remember, the Iranians want to develop a nuclear weapon. Anybody who doesn't believe that shouldn't be in office. They want to develop a nuclear weapon. They'll do everything in their power to do it. And Israel will stop them. Uh, Israel will stop them by whatever means it takes, just like America would stop if there were a country sworn to its destruction. Remember what we did when the Soviet Union put missiles in Cuba. We didn't accept that. And Israel's not going to accept nuclear weapons in a country sworn to its destruction. Yeah, I, I hope President Biden understands that. Uh, things are going to c- continue to explode over there. Uh, Professor, always great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. one 408 I didn't know about his book, right? He came out yesterday. <laughs> Let's go grab it. one 408 When we come back, I know you have a lot to say, so get on board. And then we're going to talk to Jamie Metzl about this other thing called a global pandemic still uh, plaguing over 150 countries. Why aren't people more curious how this started? And why is it that China's getting away with it as they've now grown at something like 18% their GDP? But what about us? Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. 
While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. And that's what the civil rights movement was all about. It was about activism. It was about confrontation. And a lot of people see that as being bad. And they tried to turn my words into something about violence. It's not about violence. Martin Luther King was about nonviolence. I am nonviolent. Confrontation was used in the sit-ins for the civil rights legislation. The marches, the prayers, all of that's confrontation. Yeah, he, she's trying to explain away what the judge called her out on, doing something totally inappropriate. You have to get into more confrontation. Don't try to spin it out like you do and are allowed to do with Joy Reid on another channel. Steve, listen to WRCN on Long Island. Hey, Steve. Good morning, Brian. Uh, I'm here in the cemetery here in Yapank. I have ancestors who fought for the Union during the Civil War, and I have one here who died in Andersonville. And when they talk about reparations and how racist we are, they're forgetting half the story. True. Uh, Fought 400,000 plus lives lost uh, over the course of four years uh, for this. But afterwards, Reconstruction was a mess. Jim Crow laws did exist. And guess whose uh, brainchild they were? Democrats. It was Joe Biden who gave the eulogy at Senator Byrd's funeral, right? Did he ever bring up? By the way, you were the grand wizard of the KKK, and, and you had no problem hanging out with them. I don't remember making public pronouncements against uh, you know white racism and segregationists. And if we were such a racist country, how come he never got around to saying that from 1973 to 2000, I don't know, 15? Absolutely. Unbelievable. Good point. Not a perfect country. And I'm listening to these interviews on the streets with these people saying, well, we stole the land from the American Indians and then we enslaved the uh, African-Americans. That's like these are let's kick the Australians right out of Australia. The Aborigines were there first. Make sure people know there were there were people there before the British got there and took over the United Kingdom. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. There are people there prior to that, so the British have to leave there. It's called migration in a lot of ways. We know about our history. Now, all of a sudden, we want to go back 400 years and apologize for ancestors that clearly had nothing to do with us. We're not even related to them.
But uh, we have a lot more to discuss on this. And I think that I think in many ways that this is not even a racist issue. And I've been brought to bring this up to a lot of people. The way Derek Chauvin acted, the way this whole thing took place, race didn't seem to play a role. It was an overreaction to a $20 bill, to uh, drugs being involved. We saw it all on tape. If you look at all this tape together, I think you have it over the course of 45 minutes and that you wouldn't think that this happened because of race. We'll talk about that uh, throughout the show. When we come back, we're going to talk to Jamie Metzl. Uh, He is also an advisor of the WHO on top of everything else he is, a senior fellow at The Atlantic. And he's going to be talking to us about the coronavirus. How we still don't know where it came from is unacceptable. Why we have to get answers is the truth. Don't leave. Brian Kilmeade Show. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. I don't know why the media seems so uninterested in solving this pandemic. I can't figure that out. It boggles my mind, okay? My, my working theory is that they don't want to admit that they were wrong. You know, that if you are getting attacked and, and oh, well, don't you want to, you know, your instinct is to say, oh, well, I tweeted something in March 2020, and I don't want to go back on that because I'm going to get dunked on by whoever. But what I'm saying is that's not important. Nobody should care about that. I don't care what you tweeted, Brian, in March 2020. Yep. I'm not going to tell you what I tweeted in March 2020 because it's April 2021, and we got to look into the lab. we got to figure this out. It's a matter of our public health. Josh Rogan of the Washington Post wrote a book, Chaos Under Heaven, just about our relationship with China. Next thing you know, we're hitting uh, the pandemic, and he's just stunned that many in the media are afraid to go over the origins of this virus. And this is part of the outrage that I'm picking up from Jamie Metzl, senior fellow of the Atlantic Council, advisor to the uh, WHO. Jamie, welcome back. Thanks, Brian. Happy to be with you. So, I mean, do you, Josh Rogan is, is almost astounded, flabbergasted. The more I talk to him about the book he wrote and where the pandemic came from, the more people are aggressively pursuing the Wuhan lab theory, even to eliminate it. Well, we need to be examining and aggressively exploring every hypothesis. I mean, right now, we don't know where this pandemic came, how it started, and that should worry all of us. So, we need to absolutely do everything we can, leave no stone unturned, looking at the possibility that this could have started from a lab accident. We also need to look at could it have started in nature. And there's such a fear and such a bias of even asking the question about um, whether this started in a lab that I think it's it's warped things. And, and that's what you know, people like Josh and I and others are really trying to fix. Let's have a thorough examination of all hypotheses and let's get to the bottom of this you know what's amazing is if you would think there was anything that could bring us together jamie would be this we clearly you can't blame a democrat you can't blame trump you can't blame schumer for why this happened you know the uh, the the president was aggressive with china people were uh, critical of that but now the biden administration is aggressive with china and republicans are sitting on the sidelines so to speak Here's a little bit more about the projects they were working on and how disturbing and how easy it might be to uh, ascertain how this happened. Cut 49. The plan is to take that research, that Peter Dazic research, and spend $1.2 billion expanding it sixfold. Okay. What? 
the Global Virome Project, that is the response. That is the plan response. $200 million, which failed to predict, under the PREDICT program, it's called PREDICT, which failed to predict, much less preempt the pandemic. They're now going to times it by six and throw $1.2 billion into it. And I, I swear to God, dig up 500,000 new viruses that are transmissible to humans in the wild and take them to labs and play around with them. That's the no. plan. That Wait, is exactly whose plan? Whose plan? The world's plan. Global Virome Project is an international project heavily supported by, guess you guessed it, Peter Daszak and Anthony Fauci and all the rest of them, all the people who have made their careers in virology based on this idea that the best way to stop pandemics is to dig up a bunch of viruses in the wild. But oh you know what? God. Maybe maybe that's not the best way. Maybe we should spend that money on monitoring and surveillance so that when outbreaks happen, we can squash them easily and on pl pl placing you know medical resources and things in the places where the bats are rather than dragging the viruses to a lab and then there's an outbreak next to the lab and everyone's like oh i must have been the market or something like that <laughs> so your reaction to what josh discovered yeah so i mean I, josh didn't necessarily discover this but there, this is a big big issue there are some people who think well we, we're facing this pandemic threat we need to collect all the scariest viruses and study them so that we know what we're facing. There are other people, and Josh is in that camp, and I'm also in that camp, who say, hey, wait a second, we have these terrible viruses that are in caves and hidden away. Let's certainly monitor them, let's study them, but the more that we start bringing them to labs, and especially labs uh, like the Wuhan Institute of Virology, that as Josh has reported on, have, have spotty security records and exist in countries like China, where we have questions about their whole regulatory infrastructures, let's be actually cautious and let's have a thorough investigation into how this pandemic started before we double down on a process that actually may have accelerated this pandemic rather than, as Josh correctly says, prevented it. So the group think that allows, if you want to get grants, you don't buck the system the last clip I want to play for you is this, cut 50. What you have to understand is that this body of research, this gain-of-function research, the whole world of virologists, and I, I, I came to learn a lot about how this operates over the last year and a half of writing this book. It's very insular, okay? And I often talk to scientists who say the same thing. They say, listen, we really want to speak out about this, but we can't do it. Why can't we do it? Well, we get all of our funding from NIH or NIAD, which is the National Association for Infectious Diseases, which is run by Dr. Fauci for years and years and years. And so we can't say anything like, oh, gain-of-function research might be dangerous or it might have come from the lab because we're, we're going to lose our, our careers. We're going to lose our funding. We're not going to be able to do the work. People like to say, oh, the scientists all think this. But there's a whole bunch of science. More and more are coming out, actually, and you see them every day. And Redfield's uh, uh, sort of signal was like, this is okay to do. You can say this. And, you know, but, but still, they get attacked for being racist or whatever, and they might lose their funding. And the head of that pyramid, the head of the funding, the head of the entire field really is Anthony Fauci. He's the godfather of gain-of-function research as we know it. Now, that, again, just what I said there, is like too hot for, you know, TV because people don't want to think about the fact that our hero of the pandemic, Dr. Fauci, might also have been connected to this research, which might also have been connected to the outbreak. So your thoughts about that scenario? So it, there's no doubt about it uh, that the United States government, not just uh, the, the NIH, but USAID and the Defense Department, funded this gain-of-function research uh, in China through the vehicle of the EcoHealth Alliance. And yes, this stuff is sensitive, but 
we are in the middle of the worst pandemic in a century. Three million people are dead. Now is the time when we need to be fearlessly asking tough questions. And we need to recognize it's not that Anthony Fauci is a, a villain or a hero. I mean, life, the world is complicated, but we can't be afraid of asking the tough questions. We can't be afraid of really, really digging to figure out what happened. And certainly there has been a lot of fear in the science community. I'm in touch with lots of scientists, and that's what they have been telling me for the better part of a year. Speaking up would be career suicide. It is starting to, uh, to change. Uh, a number of virologists, and we're going to see a lot more of that over the, over the coming week or two, are stepping forward and saying, um, hey, we need to examine. We don't know the full origin of the pandemic, but we have to ask the question. We have to be driven by the scientific method, which is not let's pick our favorite um, outcome and then investigate just one hypothesis. It's let's examine all of the hypothesis, the hypotheses and follow the data where it takes us. Jamie, uh, so you're pretty astounded, I, I guess, by like, you're almost as flabbergasted as he is who it's happened over the last year uh, because we have not been able to pursue these answers. We do say if you do buck the system and say, you know, I don't think this is true and I'm, I want to get right. back to my life. Who the hell are you? You're being selfish. You sense that's changing. Admiral Gerard weighed in on America Reports yesterday. You know, he was running everything for Trump on this. Cut 47. Yeah. What you're seeing now at the, at the briefings are more politics and ideology than science. If you've been vaccinated and others around you have been va- vaccinated, you should be back to normal. Uh, remember, over 50% of adults have gotten the vaccine. So we should be very close. In Texas, schools have been open since August. You want to talk about what's harming our children and what's going to be indelible? It's places like Washington, D.C. that keeps the schools closed. So, you know, I got the second vaccine. I guess you wait, wait a right. week or two in the perfect world uh, yeah. for it to kick in. But why isn't there more of a push to get back to normal? You explain to people like adults right. that there's a little bit of a risk here, but go at it. I'm not making you go out to eat. I'm not making you go to school. I'm not making you we'll give you a hybrid model if you need it. I'm not making you go back to work. Right. But we'd like you back here. Yeah, you know, so there's a lot of logic to that. And here's here's what our public health leaders are, are weighing. I mean, I, I, I personally think it's, it's true um, that if somebody's been fully vaccinated, meaning two weeks, if, if it's the Moderna or Pfizer, two weeks after your, your second shot, we now know that your ability to infect other people is pretty low. Your ability uh, to be infected is relatively low. It's not zero, um, but it's, it's, it's obviously much, much lower than, uh, than it, it, it was. But for the people who aren't vaccinated, actually, the risk to those people is skyrocketing. And I think that what what public my best guess of what public health leaders are thinking is if they say, all right, you're vaccinated, you have the all clear, you can do whatever you want. Don't wear a mask that societally people will just say, all right, now everybody um, shouldn't doesn't need to wear a mask. Everyone can go back. And the people who aren't vaccinated are going to get walloped because if in that scenario, uh, because the new variant uh, and the fastest, the, the UK variant is the fastest growing variant here. It's much more aggressive. So I think that's what they're trying to, to balance. But, but tell me if I'm wrong here, Jamie. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. So I can't, according to the CDC, and they walked it back the next day, didn't say she was wrong, but said she shouldn't have said it. Uh, it's, the CDC said the same thing the Admiral just said, that once you have the vaccine, you can't carry the virus. 
without knowing right. it. You can't carry it. He vouched you over the week and says, oh, you can carry your nasal passage. Well, the CDC director and now the Admiral Giroir, who's the doctor, he, he says right. you can't do that. So, I'm, you know, me being vaccinated and you not being vaccinated is not right. going to affect anything. And if and you are making a decision not to get vaccinated and to live your life like you weren't, those are your decisions at this point. I can't say anything different to you. Yeah. You know, I, I think that the, the, I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I just think that the job that we've given our public health officials is to try to protect us, even those of us who make decisions not to be vaccinated. And so I think that what they're trying to say is how do we, from a public health perspective, and certainly from my perspective, it would be best if everybody who could be vaccinated is vaccinated. I know there's some concern about the vaccinations, but trust me, I live in this world. You should be much more afraid of getting infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus than the, the, uh, the vaccination. But our, the job we've given our public health officials is to try to protect everybody, even the people who've made the decision not to be uh, to be vaccinated. And so I think that's in my mind, that's what they're trying to do is if they give the all clear, um, they're afraid that people everyone will stop wearing masks. Everyone will stop social, uh, being socially distant and the risk to the non-vaccinated will, will further skyrocket. Jamie, tell me if you were struck by this. This was brought up on our show this week that. The head of the WHO actually trumped his own report after he read it. And he said, look, we still need to find out what's going on in China. And they have not been transparent. How would someone who's heading the WHO have a final report and say, I really don't believe it? No, I this is I'm so glad you've raised this, Brian. I actually when I was on Laura Ingram with uh, with your colleague from Fox and Friends who was guest hosting, I, I made this point. Uh, Dr. Tedros Adhanom, the WHO director general, he's a real hero of this story because it, the people are so confused about this really technical point. But the entity that wrote that report, the entity that did the study tour in China, wasn't the WHO. It was an independent advisory committee that was co-organized by the WHO. But the WHO had no control over it, and, it, and they did a, a joint report with their Chinese government counterparts. And so Tedros, when they came out, the very day they came out with their report, said, hey, wait a second, this isn't right. We need to have a full investigation of all origin hypotheses. And then he said, if this group isn't willing to do it, I'm willing to appoint new experts who can get to the bottom of this. And so that's why I think we really need to recognize that, that Tedros has risked his essentially his entire career to do the right thing here. And the real problem is the way that this joint study process was structured. And that is because last year in the World Health Assembly, which is the governing body of the WHO, there were a number of states put together a resolution organizing things this way. And China was fully supportive. And and sadly, this was the time when President Trump was talking about pulling out of the WHO and, and the United States wasn't really in that fight. And, and so that's why now it's, it's encouraging that Tony Blinken, Avril Haines, and others have stepped forward and say, hey, we need to look into this. Understanding how the pandemic started really matters. And that's why I think we should support Dr. Tedros in this effort, because he's really made a risk to try to do the right thing. I hope so, eventually. Um, but the more you speak out, I think you really help other people, too. Jimmy Metzl, Thank thanks you. so much. Really, uh, my great pleasure, Brian. Anytime. You got it. one 866 408-7669. I'll take your calls next. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. A very important Wednesday. Don't move. 
Expanding your knowledge base. It's Brian Kilmeade. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Ms. Abrams, is the Georgia election law uh, that uh, Speaker Jones talked about, is it a racist piece of legislation? I think there are components of it that are indeed racist because they use racial animus as a means of targeting the behaviors of certain voters to eliminate their partici- or limit their participation in elections. So you, you believe that the Georgia legislature uh, made deliberate attempts to suppress minority, the minority vote? Yes. How? By asking for an ID, by saying don't worry about signature verification, by saying the no-excuse ballot can be happening, but just make sure you ask for it 17 days ahead of time so you can get it back and forth, number one. Or number two, just having valid ID. You have 18 months to get a valid ID. They say there's 100,000 people in Georgia without a valid ID. I doubt it. Number two, that means if you are homeless or something to that extent, you could even go to a homeless camp. You do it with food. We do it with food. We do it with access. We do it with COVID-19 tests. Go in there and hand out free ID to people. That's a little of the give and take yesterday on the Georgia uh, the, the Georgia election law. And that was Senator John Cornyn on that. So I want you to hear Stacey Abrams go back and forth. Um, do we have more from Cornyn? Do we pull? Yeah, let's listen to more. Do you know that uh, Gallup says that 69% of black voters support voter ID and 75% of voters overall? Sir, I'm among those who support voter ID. I've never objected to voter ID. I object to narrowly tailoring and narrowing the permissive ability. So so you agree with voter ID in some circumstances and not in others? That's not what I've said, sir. Well, what are you talking about? I mean, you have to have voter ID. Vote by mail or or in person, you're going to be on on the rolls. So is that that is Jim Crow 2.0? Then they say they weren't he wasn't being fair to her. Here's Senator Tom Cotton, 38. In sum, you publicly attacked the Georgia law as Jim Crow no fewer than 10 times before Major League Baseball withdrew the game. You told corporations that boycotts work. Do you regret your central role in causing Major League Baseball to withdraw the All-Star game from Georgia? First, Senator, I would not call Georgia a Jim Crow state. I would say that SB 202 is a law that has Jim Crow aspects, and I stand by that characterization. My conversations with Major League Baseball were very clear about the fact that I did not think a boycott was necessary. I was very intentional about my language. I continue to be intentional about my language. Uh, I 100% agree with Tom Cotton. What she's seeing is that she wants to run for governor. And what she's seeing is that she cost her state hundreds of millions of dollars. And they will not vote for you, the working class, if you just destroyed their T-shirt business, their deli, their hotel, their car service. And it's because of you falsely claiming an election law post-pandemic was out to hurt minorities. That's what panic baseball. And they did the idiotic thing by moving it out. She's as responsible as anyone. 
From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of the story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hey, I appreciate you being there. Thanks so much for choosing us. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show, coming to you from New York, heard around the country, for the most part heard around the world, while monitoring Attorney General Merrick Garland, who is making announcements about systemic problems in different police departments. He also mentioned Indianapolis. We have also a situation uh, that took place yesterday that's going to be expanded on when two 16-year-old girls were uh, fighting. One had a knife about to stab the other. In comes a cop. The one with the knife actually called the cops. But the cops took her out because he was about to stab the other girl. Now there's more protests in the streets there. This is on the heels of a big case that took place yesterday. They came to a verdict with Derek Chauvin. To surprise a few, guilty on all counts. So we have uh, Mark Bronovich. He is the attorney general of Arizona. He's beside himself, like all of you, about what's happening at the border, especially in his state. What is most stunning is the federal government is ignoring it. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Do you know that uh, Gallup says that 69% of black voters support voter ID and 75% of voters overall? Sir, I'm among those who support voter ID. I've never objected to voter ID. So you agree with voter ID in some circumstances and not in others? That's not what I've said, sir. Yeah, there's a little bit of tension, but a lot of information that Stacey Abrams was, was bending out of proportion. Voting laws in the Senate, front and center yesterday. Abrams is asked to defend her Jim Crow 2.0 comments about the Georgia election law and boycotts call on Home Depot because they are not supporting the Georgia election outrage. Time to take a stand. Number two. I hope that the, the gaggle of media at the White House will ask Kamala Harris why she killed police reform last summer. Tim Scott met with her and she got up and would not negotiate because the issue is more important to her than the solution. That is uh, Trey Gowdy. And man, is he on the money. President Biden, VP Harris and former President Obama react to Derek Chauvin's verdict and Believe America, a racist country. I don't. And where those beliefs come from, I'm a little surprised. Because Barack Obama didn't say things like that when he was in office. And Joe Biden has been in office since the 70s. Hasn't come up. Number one. We, the jury, in the above-entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. Count two, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. Count three, Second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, find the defendant guilty. There you go. Uh, The judge reading the verdict uh, given to him by the jury. Guilty on all counts. Derek Chauvin spent the night and possibly the rest of his life in jail. And do you think the protests and Maxine Waters' threats virtually guaranteed this conviction? Mostly, I think it's Chauvin's actions caught on tape that did. But, man, was this overboard. And it's just the beginning. What does it mean for the appeal? What does it mean for future cop-involved cases? And that's the big thing. And do you know that during the day, this has been overwhelmed. Joe Biden weighed in during the day before the verdict even came down in the morning, yet Tuesday morning. You're a lawyer. You know, President Trump speaks his mind. We know it shoots from the hip. That's the way he got elected. But he's not a lawyer. You know, Joe Biden should know better. Uh, But of course, there's so many things that Joe Biden does. He gets a total pass on Did this new study that I think something like uh, 
80% of everything Joe Biden does is reported positively. Do you know how much we reported positively overall for Donald Trump? Or why don't I do the other way? Negatively, 89%. 89% of the stories on Donald Trump over the last four years have been negative. And you wonder why Joe Biden's got a 59% approval rating and probably Donald Trump has, a, on average, when he was in office, 43% approval rating. But here's how it sounded yesterday when Judge Peter Cahill read the verdicts. Cut one. We, the jury, in the above-entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. We, the jury, in the above-entitled matter as to count two, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. We, the jury, in the above-entitled matter as to count three, Second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk. Find the defendant guilty. So soon after, Joe Biden picked up the phone, guilty, 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 taken out in cuffs, no bail. Got out of the three who are going to be front and center soon. Uh, They're going to be tried, and that's going to be harder to convict because one was on on the job for two weeks. I was just talking to a police officer today. So let me just tell you something. That's your commanding officer. You've been doing the job for two weeks. You're not going to say... Uh, commander, captain, get off him. You just don't do it. It's never been done. It's not done in the military. It's never done there. That's just the fact. So looking at that, you have to wonder if they're going to be able to get a fair trial for the other three. Uh, no, they're found guilty on all charges. You've got three more who are going to be up there in a matter of weeks. Also, Dante Wright, a few miles away, 10 days away, uh, the, the, he was uh, killed uh, inadvertently by a police officer right in Minneapolis, in Brooklyn Center, to be specific. And then uh, there's a trial for 13-year-old Adam Toledo in Chicago last month because, of course, he's running uh, from the cops. And then he got shot, uh, 17-year-old, I should say. So these, there's a lot of controversy out there, a lot of things happening, but there are about 10 million interactions with police officers every year, and we're talking about a handful, and people should have a perspective on that. And Joe Biden should have a perspective on that. But it didn't take long for him to call the families. The audio's not great, but here he is calling Benjamin Krupp and the Floyd family after the guilty verdict came in. I'll play some of this as long as we can hear it. Cut seven. It's feeling better now. Nothing... It's going to make it all better, but at least, God, now there's some justice. In the right. And, you know, I think a, I think a John is coming. My daddy's going to change the world. He's going to start to change it now. That's right. Yes. yes. Amen. He's going to start to change it now. Yes. So, you've been incredible. You're an incredible family. I wish I were there just with my arms around you. I'm standing here. We've been talking, we've been watching every second of this, and the vice president, all of us, and uh, um, just, I, we're all so relieved, not just one word, all three, purely on all three counts, and uh, it's, it's really important, I'm anxious to see you guys, I really am, and we're going to get a lot more done, we're going to get police, we're going to do a lot, we're going to stay at it till we get it done. Hopefully this is the momentum for the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act to get passed to have you signed. Well, that, I just don't think the George Floyd police reform has is, is got the police involved. If you're going to have any type of police reform, and that's what they're discussing and pushing from Al Sharpton, everybody who uh, does an interview, I guess, has been instructed to bring up George Floyd police reform. Uh, what basically says, get rid of no-knock warrants. You talk to a police officer. Do you want to walk into a, a room when you know people on the other end are armed and knock first? 
Really? If you want to have different stri- uh, different restrictions to getting no-knock warrants, go ahead. So you don't have a Breonna Taylor situation, but you don't eliminate them. Then you say, don't put your hands on anybody, and I don't want any choke holes. But choke holes aren't there to choke somebody out. They're there to restrain. So you have a situation where everybody's running from the cops and fighting the cops, but you can't put them in choke holes. You have to get law enforcement involved. I'm not saying there shouldn't be any reform or modernization and find out if there's a different, uh, a different funding or extending weeks of the academy or more frequent trainings. This is all, all different types of things. But you have to deal in the police. Tim Scott, Cory Booker are working on something that people should be encouraged with. But the bill that the House passed, a knee-jerk reaction in March, is not something that's going to fly with uh, with Republicans. So if Joe Biden wants to get something done, they could get something done. Just don't do it without the police. What I don't appreciate and I don't subscribe to is that we are a racist country, and this is more evidence of it. They were a racist country. We finally got one thing right. That I do not subscribe to. And I thought yesterday on the 7 o'clock show with Ben Dominich did a great job hosting, he interviewed Kamel Foster, who's the uh, with the Fifth Column podcast, really smart guy, African-American uh, guy who's a really good writer. I saw him. Uh, you see him on and off on on various channels. And he was asked about the verdict. And here's what he said. Cut 23. I also think it's very important to keep things into perspective. And I think talking about people being perpetually afraid of being murdered on their way to the gas station or while they're shopping at the supermarket, effectively by members of law enforcement, that was the ostensible uh, intimation on the part of the president during his remarks. Um, and I just think that's absurd. Mm-hmm. I don't think people actually live in fear in that way. And he doesn't. He's out in Los Angeles. And there's been problems in Los Angeles. But it didn't stop the president from taking some time to tell everyone in America yesterday in his address uh, that we're racist. And uh, we've always been racist. He and uh, Harris, cut three. America has a long history of systemic racism. Black Americans and black men in particular have been treated throughout the course of our history as less than human. Here's the truth about racial injustice. It is not just a black America problem or a people of color problem. It is a problem for every American. And it ripped the blinders off for the whole world to see the systemic racism, profound fear and trauma, the pain, the exhaustion that black and brown Americans experience every single day. Right. Okay. Congratulations. You've been there since 1973 and you've done nothing. And now you come to this conclusion at the age of 78 in the year 2021. And I thought Britt Hume put it in perspective. We know about uh, black and white bathrooms. We know about the back of the bus. We know about Rosa Parks. We know about Reconstruction, the disaster it is. We know about, uh, we know about the Drew Scott decision, uh, the Drew Scott, the Dred Scott decision. We know all about that. And we learn about it in school, and we talk about how much progress we made. And I thought Britt Hume put it in perspective last night. Cut 20. Well, one thing I think we, 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 we need to do, Ben, is we need to speak out against this loud and clear to say that America may be, um, for a mixed-race country, the least racist country on earth, that we have a proud history of doing all we can to overcome the legacy that racism left us from the earliest days of the Republican Republic. We need to do that, and we need to not be cowed or, or backed down by being, by being accused of being a racist. It's flung about with abandon. We need to, we need to resist that. We need to denounce it.
And we'll talk more about that. I also, when we get back, I want to talk, talk to you about Stacey Abrams and what she was asked to Capitol Hill to really define what her problem is with these election laws that were put into place because they were all loosened up uh, thanks to a big Democratic effort uh, because of the pandemic. Legitimate or illegitimate, all these states are tying up some loose ends to make sure people know they'll be voting back to business as usual when it comes to the pandemic being beat, we hope. And, of course, 2022, when we go back to the voting booth, uh, we want to be able to be walking around without masks. We should be walking around without masks now. Uh, Mark Brnovich at the bottom of the hour, unless they get pushed back on television, then we'll delay him a little bit. And he's the attorney general who I believe has got a lot of merit to his lawsuit suing the federal government to make them do what they're supposed to do. And that's protect the border states and hence the back door of our country. Uh, those stories and more coming up next at one 408 7669 Brian Kilmeade Show. Getting past all the rhetoric. It's Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. It was a mixture of violent and nonviolent protests that yielded this result. That's the bottom line. America doesn't listen to us when we march peacefully. I'm not saying people will be back in the street, but America must know that if you continue to allow us to be murdered in the streets without justice, we will raise hell in America. I just wonder if Hawk Newsom and BLM is ever going to focus on the 903 who have been shot in Chicago this year already. You have one or two with three or four incidents here, and they were worthy of examination and notification. I get it. And there's uh, there's others that aren't like the Devin Chauvin, uh, the, the uh, Chauvin case that are going to be harder to figure out. But uh, to say that you're going to promise violence if you don't get the verdict you want is exactly the mob violence that our system cannot function on. I cannot vote guilty because I don't want to get beat up or I don't want my city burned down. Chris lives on WDBO in Orlando. Hey, Chris. Hey, Brian. How are you? Good. What's in your mind? I'm good, man. I'll make a quick comment in regards to uh, President Biden and Mrs. Harris's comments yesterday. You know, they're constantly pounding the systemic race racism card, and, and I'm kind of getting disappointed that the Republicans aren't fighting back with some of their own tactics and not rhetoric but facts, you know. We do have an issue in America, right, and it is systemic. But it's not racially systemic. It's financially systemic. See, when you have the 1994 Crime Act that disproportionately affects lower income, um, often, unfortunately, uh, minorities at a high level. And then you have the in, in the Obama administration, uh, marijuana, and that's a totally different conversation, but it yep. should be part of what's going on, came up for reclassification in the Obama administration, left it classified the same as crack cocaine or, or heroin or so on and so forth. So, you know, when it disproportionately affects lower income, when it dis- disproportionately affects lower income who are often minorities, it's, a, it's an all process. It's not police. It's not just police. There's bad apples. 
But you know what? We need to look at criminal justice reform as well. You know, Trump did some of that. We need to do more of that. We can't keep pointing the finger. We need to start talking about what the facts are. And the and families. Some of the policies that the Democrats Chris, use right. specifically target them. Uh, it's unbelievable. I mean, I would love to attack the long term, the family situation. You look at George Floyd. This guy's guy was went to jail for armed robbery. He tied up a woman and was keeping her hostage. This guy was a drug addict and a criminal. I do not want to look up to George Floyd, but he never should have died at the hands of Derek Chauvin. I don't want to look up to a 17-year-old who gets shot in the alley with a gun in his hand at 11 o'clock at night on a Tuesday. I mean, we want to go for justice with people. Maybe he shouldn't have died, but maybe he should be in a gang-infested area with a gun right by a cop and then run with that gun down an alley. Over and over again, then you see this 20-year-old run from the cops after he was pulled over for an outstanding warrant. They all come from these broken, fractured homes that don't have the even, forget money, that don't have the foundational understanding of values and ethics. Some of the best families are, are working-class families. There's a lot of rich families that are an absolute mess. Money helps, but I'm not talking about money. There's got to be a, a, a foundation. And some of these uh, minority communities just don't have that foundation. I don't know exactly how to attack it, but this is not working. Uh, and that's, that's pretty much a fact. Uh, I want so Hawk Newsom was just talking about that. And we also had the Attorney General of the United States, uh, Merrick Garland, come out and say there's now going to be an investigation, an investigation to the Minneapolis police. I am announcing that the Justice Department has opened a civil investigation to determine whether the Minneapolis Police Department engages in a pattern or practice of unconstitutional or unlawful policing. This effort will be staffed by experienced attorneys and other personnel from the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division and the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Minnesota. The new civil investigation is separate from and independent of the federal criminal investigation into the death of George Floyd that the Justice Department has previously announced. So that's Merrick Garland. First time I've, I've actually seen him outside his confirmation uh, and that he's talking about what's going to be happening. Find out what's going on in Minneapolis. You know, I mean, I, we saw what happened. I've never heard of that. I've talked to more police officers individually, collectively. I've never heard of someone taking their gun, uh, thinking they have a taser and using a gun. But I've never done the arrest. Let's find out what's going on there. Is the training terrible? I know one thing. They are shedding way too many officers and asking way too much from them. Uh, while they're taking beatings and forced to absorb bricks and bats and frozen bottles being tossed at them, let alone being shot at uh, shot in the National Guard in Minneapolis, nobody wants that job. And they got some terrible lawmakers around them. Uh, these mayors in Minneapolis are terrible. They're in way over their heads. And the whole country's watching. Let's find out what the Attorney General says when he comes out, if they can have an honest and even investigation. one 408 7669 It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. The U.S. Border Patrol is overwhelmed, and yet we still haven't received an adequate response from the Biden administration. That's why today I'm announcing that we are deploying the National Guard on our own. 
But what are the National Guard's limitations? We've been through this before, although I, I understand that just having the presence there would certainly be reassuring. Governor Doug Ducey of Arizona just flabbergasted that he's been left on his own for the last 100 days since President Biden's taken over. They stopped building the wall. They stopped to remain in Mexico. They stopped the third country uh, rule, and people have streamed in, and it has not stopped And they don't seem to care. And the media has pulled out. We have not. And the attorney general of Arizona has not let up. He's coming up with creative lawsuits to force the courts to do what the president refuses to. Mark Brunovich joins us now, attorney general of Arizona. Mr. Attorney General, welcome uh, to the Brian Kilmeade Show. I talked to you on TV, just not on radio. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me on. So, I mean, I could hear the frustration and you could see it in his face, the governor. And I feel it with you, too. What can you do to get the wall rebuilt, the security remade and reconstituted, and facilities constructed? Well, Brian, I'm glad the governor finally deployed the National Guard. It's something that I've been calling for, and I think it's so important because law enforcement, Border Patrol, the local communities are being overwhelmed. And that's why, as you alluded to, I have filed, using the tools in my toolbox, I have filed numerous lawsuits. I've sued the Biden administration over stopping the deportation deportations. I've sued them, or we've tried to intervene in the public charge rule where they dropped that, which now essentially means that if you're um, an illegal migrant, you are getting government benefits like housing and you know, child care, all these sorts of things that taxpayers have paid for for years. And then the other lawsuit we have you alluded to is we just filed recently involves um, saying that the Biden administration violated the Environmental Protection Act by not completing an environmental impact study when they stopped building the wall and rescinded the Remain in Mexico policy. So we are asking a federal judge to force the Biden administration to continue building the wall, to reinstate the Remain in Mexico policy, so that way we can stop the environmental damage that people coming across the border. Where are these cases now? Uh, is the judge looking at them? Do they know there's an urgency? Yeah, well, the, 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 regarding the pause and deportations, the judge has allowed us to have expedited discovery. And so we actually are in the process of we'll be able to depose three Homeland Security officials and try to get to the bottom of what is happening, what is not is happening. Um, the other lawsuit the, the, regarding the public charge rule, we are actually filing an p- appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court because the Ninth Circuit wouldn't let us intervene in that. So we're doing that. And the third one, we're still kind of in the beginning phases of, you know, we're getting assigned a judge and trying to get into court to uh, argue our case. But I will tell you, I was just down on the border yesterday talking to a lot of the ranchers, you know, multi-generational families, and they were so happy about that lawsuit related to NEPA because no one's ever done that. And they see firsthand all the clothes and the trash and everything that's left there. And as I pointed out, it's been expected there's going to be 2 million people crossing the border this year. I mean, that's like the entire state of Nebraska walking across our borders. I mean, that has an environmental impact. And I think it exposes the hypocrisy of the environmentalists. Is they don't seem to care about that, you know, but they'll try to stop an airport or freeway or housing project from being built. So I want you to hear Sheriff Mark Lamb. You're probably familiar with him from Pinal County. Uh, he's talking about what a disaster this is. Cut 43. It's been a complete disaster since this administration's come in. And they are to blame. It is a crisis. They can use all the different words they want other than crisis. But what they're doing is they are losing credibility with the American people. And they didn't have a lot of credibility to start off with. So whatever credibility they're losing now is not going to help them. So... He's frustrated. Law enforcement's frustrated. Do you notice we're not talking Democrats or Republicans? 
Do you notice that we're not saying, talking in a theory about a piece of legislation? We're just talking about here and now, right? Yeah, it's, I actually was with Sheriff Lamb yesterday. And just so your listeners know, like Pinell County, where we were at is, you know, 70, 80 miles from the border. Um, but it's near major freeways that connect throughout this country. And so you literally can go to that desert, which is 70 miles from the border, and you see, you know, the slipper shoes, the carpet shoes. You see camouflage jackets. You see water bottles, all sorts of trash. It's a huge corridor for smuggling, and it's not only smuggling people. It's smuggling drugs into this country. And we know that just last month there's been a 233% increase in fentanyl seizures. So I keep saying this. It, it is the Biden administration created this problem by decriminalizing and incentivizing people coming here, and they refuse to do anything about it. And every American is going to pay the cost, either financially or, God forbid, we're going to end up with a tragedy in this country. Famously, he took Arizona, did the president. Does he understand that Arizona is watching to see if they wasted their vote? I, think, I, I don't know what the Biden administration is doing. I've invited sec, or Secretary Becerra. I've invited Kamala Harris out here to meet with us. Uh, you know, Vice President Harris has talked before about, you know, getting on the ground and seeing and feeling what people are doing and feeling. I would urge her to come here. I would urge her to go to the desert. I would urge her to talk to Border Patrol and the sheriffs and, and learn firsthand what's going on. Talk to the ranchers, as I've done, and learn how this is an unprecedented crisis. It's the worst anyone can remember in at least, you know, 20 or 25 years. And it's overwhelming Local law enforcement, it's overwhelming local communities. You have cities here like Helaman and Benson that are being overwhelmed with migrants. And, of course, Brian, there's a huge cost to taxpayers. I mean, literally, they're, they're, they're contracting for $86 million in housing uh, for the migrants. And meanwhile, there's homeless vets here in downtown Phoenix and in most cities in America. So where are the Biden administration's priorities? Why don't they care about what's happening here in America? And what breaks my heart is it seems like Vice President Harris, President Biden, seem to be more worried about what's going on in Guatemala and Honduras than they do right here in America's backyard. And now uh, we understand uh, Steve Scalise is accusing the Biden administration of exempting illegal immigrants from COVID-19 restrictions. We're forgetting this. I'm not forgetting. You're not forgetting. But maybe everyone's forgetting. The thing that makes this different is the numbers are coming across in the middle of a pandemic. Do you know if if you want to even play politics, Mr. Attorney General, you know he had an out. He could say, hey, listen, I want to be more lenient than that horrible, my horrible predecessor. But with a pandemic, I'm going to have to leave everything in place for now, because after all, even though people are 20 feet away from me and my vice president's 12 feet away from me, I wear a mask everywhere. I'm telling everybody to mask up and uh, keep your distance. I can't actually leave our border open and have any credibility. But he has no interest in being consistent on this. What, do you understand Steve Scalise's frustration? Brian, let me phrase it to you this way. is For the last year, we've locked down our economy. We've been told that people can't, they have to socially distance. They can't gather in crowds. They can't be cramped indoor, uh, cramped inside indoors. And yet that's exactly what's happening here in America with these migrant centers. So my question is, why the hell have we had a lockdown for the last year? Or alternatively, does Biden not care about what's going on with 
everyone else in America as we release people, um, you know, into our communities after they've been cramped inside of these facilities. It's completely contrary to everything that CDC has been saying. So there is a massive disconnect, but it's on it's on several levels. It's on this. It's not fair to taxpayers. It's not fair to people that played by the rules. It's not fair when we have a public health crisis going on. It's not fair to local communities that are being overwhelmed. Yep. And the reality is, is that with fentanyl increasing in this country, uh, we're at a five-year high with sex offenders being apprehended. Um, it, you know, we know, I know from talking to border sheriffs, you know, the number of pursuits every day now, there's additional pursuits going on. It is dangerous. It is dangerous. And, and people are going to get hurt as a result of these Biden policies. And um, I just need to do everything I can. I know some politicians out there act slower and some aren't acting at all. But I'm going to do everything I can in my power to try to protect Arizona. And as I protect Arizona, I think that protects America. So you got multiple lawsuits and you called the White House. You don't get anything. You called the attorney general, the vice president's office. You don't get any response. But what about your senators, both Democrats, Kirsten Sinema and Mark Kelly? They have to understand what state they live in, right? Yeah, I would assume so. And um, they, we've tried to communicate, and I, I hope they appreciate the seriousness of this. But this is the problem, Brian, with a lot of politicians, is they will talk about issues. They'll go do a photo op in the border. They'll stand there with some Border Patrol agents, and they'll say, oh, look, I care. But the reality is that for too long, especially in Washington, D.C., people say something, and then they don't do something. That's why we have these massive amount of problems. And so, my goodness, if, if I were a U.S. senator, I would be – banging on the White House gate saying, let me in because we have to protect Arizona. We have to do everything we can to make sure that we aren't wasting tax dollars and that we're keeping our country secure. Once we secure that border, then you can start talking about other social issues and how you handle this issue long term. But it is impossible right now to get anything done with this massive crisis on our border. And it's I I just can't believe it. It's head scratching. And then, you know, meanwhile, you know, D.C., they're talking about nationalizing our elections with H.R. 1. They're talking about packing the Supreme Court. (laughs) Meanwhile, like people, um, migrants are being exploited. The cartels are making tons of money. And we have drugs flowing into this country. Yeah. We want to make D.C. a state. Like, that's an emergency. Yeah, yeah. Mark Bronovich, as attorney general, do you want to – how do you feel about running for Senate? Are you still considering that? (laughs) I don't know, Brian. Right now, I got these multiple lawsuits going on. You know, I'm a first-generation American, and even the thought of that, you know, public school kid, even the thought of that is kind of overwhelming to me. But I will tell you what, I was brought up to serve and give back, and whatever I can do in the future to help our state, help our country, I'm going to consider. So you'd, you'd be up for that because Mark Kelly would be up, right? I'll tell you what, Mark Kelly does not represent Arizona values. I mean, Arizona is a libertarian, free market-loving, entrepreneur state where we value property rights. People can disagree without disagreeing. Um, people are proud of their First Amendment and Second Amendment rights. And I think, you know, Mark Kelly is a carpetbagger, man. He moved here from Texas, and I think that's why he's out of touch with uh, what Arizona's really think and believe. Right. Uh, so we're going to find out because he's up in 2022. Right, Mr. Attorney General? Oh, wow, he is. Oh, well, that's an opportunity then. Yeah. Opportunity for pickup for the GOP. And maybe it's you. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, Brian. That's nice of you to say. Attorney General of Arizona, Mark Brnovich, uh, doing the fight to try to secure its border. Well, uh, everyone in Washington seems to think it's no big deal. They can wish it away. Thanks so much. Thank you, Brian. Thanks so much. When we come back, we'll find out if there's indeed more to know. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. 
Coming to you on a need-to-know basis because, man, do you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, welcome back, everyone. It's time to find out uh, in these minutes we have remaining as we move forward on the Brian Kilmeade Show, if there's indeed, besides the big three, more to know. More to know. Sponsored by Oxford Gold Group. Call today to learn how you can protect your retirement and savings account. 833-600-GOLD. That's 833-600-GOLD. Well, the first story I read in the Wall Street Journal and I skipped over, and man, am I in trouble. It turns out they did a study. And if you are age 50 to 60 who regularly sleep six hours or less each night, you're more likely than not to have dementia. A study looking at the sleep habits of 8,000 people in the U.K. over 25 years added to this research conclusions. They did a group of um, 8,000 adults over 25 years, as I mentioned. Studies have also shown that interruptions preventing people from getting a good night's sleep are associated with higher dementia as well. So you are supposed to get more than six hours as an adult. Do you know anyone that's getting more than six hours? Um, yeah, I don't know. Certainly Come not on, you, not me with the three young kids. But I will say it's not more likely than not. You, uh, I feel like the study is directly aimed at you. But um, <laughs> you are you have a 22% higher risk of de- uh, developing dementia. Not more likely than not, but 22%. If I get 60, if I reach that age, which doesn't look good by these studies, uh, uh, where 60-year-olds were 37% more likely developed a disorder. I mean, I already notice it. When I don't sleep a lot, I'm fine physically, but mentally, I'll forget the most basic names, the most fundamental things. Um, So I'm already seeing it. I will back up this study, even though it was done in the U.K., you, you uh, I will back it. up the study. I will represent America. This is totally So true. that's when you forget something on the air. It's all because of lack of sleep. Dementia. I'm going Uh-oh, to I'm say, in trouble. Yeah, I'm in trouble. <laughs> Next, former Governor Chris Christie is considering, seriously considering running for president in 2024. This does not surprise me. You know, he's just 58 years old. At one point, he was the hottest guy on the Republican side. Remember, uh, two years into running for uh, as governor of New Jersey made such a difference. They were saying that he should go primary a run a primary against Mitt Romney. Instead, he supported Mitt Romney, thought Mitt Romney was going to name him his running mate. He didn't. And then he had a major election, re-election. And then afterward, he had this uh, the problem with Bridgegate, and he was never able to recover. I know, but now, you know, he's looking into it. They think, um, you know, he said if Trump runs, that's not going to play an impact in his decision. Really? That's what... I cannot as. believe that he would even consider running if Trump runs. I mean, I think just him getting out of the primary would be the problem, right? If, especially with Trump. Oh, yeah. And but by the way, I mean, there's no way there's I know he says that or his friends say there's no way he runs if Trump runs. And we'll get him on again. I'll ask him that. He will not run. Who said who else said they weren't would I run? Feel like Nikki we, Haley would not run. Yep. And we've I feel like you have asked him that before. And he, he hasn't said, like, he's not ruling it out. He deflected more. Like, I'm concentrating on what I'm doing right now. I feel like we're more of a sample. And here's why. Because Chris Christie is not comfortable backing away from anybody. Mm-hmm. But he's also a practical person. He would not want to spin his wheels. And he is very similar to President Trump, only with more political experience than President Trump, right? Yes, and probably a bit more of a filter. <laughs> not much. <laughs> not much, but a bit more. I said right. a bit. But it makes him a great guest. Yes. Oh, he's uh, the best. I would be in support of him running. He's fantastic. Right. 
And if he gets the nomination, Republicans can rest assured he knows how to fight. That's true. Next, people drink three to five cups of coffee a day are more alert and have better memory. So this is my pushback. Yeah, you counteract your lack of sleep with a lot of coffee. And again, we don't do this study. The Europeans do this study of Food Safety Authority. They moderate coffee consumption is typical three to five cups per day. In a new study, research from the University of Minnow revealed that consuming this much caffeine each day can make coffee drinkers more focused while also displaying greater memory. So you totally counteract it. And then tell our listeners what Starbucks would not sell you. Oh, listen to this. So I couldn't believe there's cold brew. I always just skipped over it. I don't want iced coffee. I don't want iced coffee. Then it was finally explained to me that cold brew is out there and I, on television. People were astounded that I didn't know. So I said it was new. But what is new about it, it's the preferred drink of millennials. What's not new is cold brew. It dates back to? The 1600s. 1600s. So they were way ahead of their time, before the wheel. Did we even have the wheel then? Eric, can you look that up? We had the wheel. All right, so we had the wheel and we had cold brew. Those are the two things, and we had boats. But did we have fire? Maybe that's why it was cold. Right, that's true. Maybe <laughs> that's true. No fire. Or definitely uh, definitely no Bunsen burners. We know that, to heat up your coffee. So then I wanted to, they said to me, well, you know, Brian, I heard about your cold brew thing. If you really want coffee, get nitro coffee, nitro brew from Starbucks. So I asked for Starbucks. I always ask for the biggest size. They go, I'm sorry, we cannot sell that venti. But, and you didn't think on your feet enough, maybe because you didn't get enough sleep, to ask for two grandes. I know. I, I could have offered that. I go, why? I, mean, I don't get this. You need CID? Next. Men who wear large logos on their shirts are seen as more promiscuous. I've said this for the longest time. Look, Laverne and Shirley, the big L she had on her shirt, and she was always had a boyfriend. Am I right, Eric? The study this is f- men who wear large logos. Oh, sorry. The study <laughs> found that people imagined that a man who owned a shirt with that large logo was more invested in mating. And less than becoming a parent, <laughs> who did this study, wearing smaller logos was associated with trustworthiness and reliability. Conveniently, we don't know who did the study. Right. Not the Europeans. I would think in the IZOD people. Maybe. With small logos. Right. Oh, true. This is bad. I mean, who wears a big logo anyway? It's a good question. I mean, there aren't, but there's some big Nike logos, right? Some. I'm not sure. <laughs> From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming up in about 20 minutes, Martha McCallum will be joining us in studio. We're taking your calls at 1-866-408-7669. And uh, the great Shelby Steele is going to be here in a matter of moments. Uh, he's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute and writer of a documentary, which is fantastic, called uh, What Killed Michael Brown. So if you want to get the facts when you're talking to your friends and family uh, about what happened with Michael Brown and all these incidents, I know one bl- uh, blends into the other. Uh, he actually did that, that Dr. Shelby Steele, and he, he hosts it and he plays a major role in it. Uh, so he'll be with us shortly to put in perspective what went down uh, yesterday and what's been going down in this country really for the last couple of years. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Do you know that uh, Gallup says that 69% of black voters support voter ID and 75% of voters overall? 
Sir, I'm among those who support voter ID. I've never objected to voter ID. So you agree with voter ID in some circumstances and not in others? That's not what I've said, sir. Yeah, that was uh, Stacey Abrams being forced to back up her statement that the new voter, uh, the new voting law in Georgia is Jim Crow 2.0. Abrams was asked to defend her Crow comments in the Georgia election, the boycotts that ensued, including the one now on Home Depot, because they are not supporting the Georgia election outrage. Is it time to end this? Number two. I hope that the, the gaggle of media at the White House will ask Kamala Harris why she killed police reform last summer. Tim Scott met with her and she got up and would not negotiate because the issue is more important to her than the solution. Absolutely. President Biden, VP Harris and former President Obama react to the Derek Chauvin verdict and believe America is a racist country. Really? I don't know where these beliefs were when President Obama was actually in office and when Joe Biden's been in office. So I don't know. What time is it? Since the 1970s. Number one. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. Count two, third degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. Count three, Second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, find the defendant guilty. And with that, Derek Chauvin spent the night in jail because he's guilty on all counts, the rest of his life perhaps too. And do you think the protests and Maxine Waters' threats virtually guaranteed this conviction? Yes. And an appeal? Absolutely. And what about the future of cops involved, cop-involved cases? Are big riots in the streets and a threat of violence going to make sure that they are all convicted? Joining us now to put it in perspective, a man that was at the forefront of the civil rights uh, revolution in the 1960s and sees a big difference now. Dr. Shelby Steele, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me. I really got a perspective on where you stand by looking at your movie, uh, What Killed Michael Brown, your documentary. I think it's time for another. Uh, Tell me what you think about the verdict and the response. Well, I, I think the ver- it was a solid. Uh, I, I watched it uh, more toward the end than the beginning, but it was uh, a solid sort of legal uh, march through uh, the the case, and I, I thought it the the final verdict made sense. I think it, there's not much ground there for appeal. Uh, they they may likely appeal anyway, but uh, I don't think there's much ground for it. It seems the the legal process itself seemed. Uh, seem up to what it should be. Uh, the reaction in the larger culture is another story. And there, it seems to me, the the, the verdict is a little anticlimactic. Um, what's different today than, than before the verdict was rendered? Uh, not very much that I can see. We still have the same, the same cultural debate. Is America systemically racist or not? Well, I don't. I don't it doesn't seem to me that this uh, this case, one way or the other, uh, resolved that. So, the President Obama, along with his wife Michelle, uh, wrote this, and I'll give you an excerpt. If we're to be honest with ourselves, we know that true justice is about much more than a single verdict in a single trial. True justice requires that we come to terms with the fact that black Americans are treated differently every day. It requires us to recognize that millions of our friends, family, and fellow citizens live in fear that their next encounter with law enforcement could be their last. And he goes on. Your thoughts on that? Well, he's just saying that um, um, say what you want. Systemic, the verdict is irrelevant. Systemic racism is, is still plagues us in American life. And uh, I'm going to hold on to that that uh, 
uh, I guess forevermore, because systemic racism is power uh, for the left. It is one of the, if not their central power. Um, it animates them. It, it is the, what they bring to the game is this charge of racism. And they're not going to, you know, no single trial is going to get them to, to move beyond this idea that, that racism is, is systemic. It's just, systemic is just a way of saying that not only is racism uh, systemic, but my entitlements, what America owes me, is vast, is vast as racism is systemic. And so that that's what the, you know, the... That argument doesn't really hinge much on the verdict here, but uh, it's giving Obama's uh, a chance to reassert that racism is, in fact, systemic and that their source of power is a valid one. Here is what President Biden used his time to say yesterday. It was a murder in the full light of day, and it ripped the blinders off for the whole world to see the systemic racism the vice president just referred to. The systemic racism is a stain on our nation's soul. The knee on the neck of justice for black Americans. Profound fear and trauma. The pain, the exhaustion that black and brown Americans experience every single day. Is he on the money? No, he's he's um, uh, he's doing the same thing Obama does. He's just reasserting systemic racism. <clears throat> that is their their god, their their source of of uh, whatever power it is that they have, which is considerable. Um, Americans, and you have to look at the other side. Why do they keep screaming systemic racism? Because Americans have tolerated it, the idea of it for a long time, and it has given the left, again, enormous cultural power that then translates into politics. Um, the, the Biden presidency, I think, uh, has, has a lot to do with that, with, with their, their claims of systemic racism. Uh, that's what they're here to fight, and because right. it's so bad, uh, you know, they need, they deserve to be uh, the ones who call the shots. So, Dr. Steele, you grew up in the 60s. I mean, you came to light in the 60s. How does what you fought for in the 60s different from what uh, people are fighting for now? Oh, it's as different as night and day. Um, the big thing is, uh, the big difference is that in the 60s, in the civil rights movement, uh, culminating in the Civil Rights Bill of 1964 and so forth, we knew exactly what we were fighting for, and everybody knew it. The people who agreed with us and the people didn't. Racism was literally everywhere there. Um, in, in the schools, every aspect of life was touched by racism in those days. And um, so the civil rights movement made perfect sense. And, and, and notice how peacefully the marches, peaceful the marches were. Because they they offered a moral witness to America, they said you can do better than this. Right. And what happened is, America did better. This in the last sixty years, America has made I think a a greater moral advance away from racism. I love. 
than any any society that uh, in, in in the world. Uh, it I can I can it just isn't here anymore. If you're black in America today, you can do absolutely anything you want. You can be the president. You can be a CEO of the biggest corporate. You can do anything so, if you're willing to prepare yourself, do the work, and so forth. But see, I, I agree with you from my perspective. I, I That's what I thought up until 2014, the stats and studies show. That's what the African Americans thought, black, black America thought. But something has changed rapidly. Are they being insincere? Is 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 Joe Biden pandering? Is President Obama being insincere, or are they sincerely Ignorant to the reality. Oh no, they're absolutely uh, cynical. They they know uh, what I know. Any what what we all know. I can in 1964, I could walk through a street in downtown Chicago, and I couldn't go into half the buildings there. More than half. I can walk down that same street now. I don't even think about it. I go wherever I want to go. They know that. It's observable. It's undeniable. But the claim of racism is so enormously powerful in American life. America is so insecure about its racial innocence that um, it, 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 they take it as though, as though racism was still systemic. It's a, it's a joke. Uh, any hint of racism, and we have a national story. Well, that wouldn't be the case if, if racism was ubiquitous, if it was everywhere. So they're being cynical. They're, they're doing it strictly because they're still, it's, it's still a source of power. And it's I, their main source of power. Is, is there some have thought, said, that they see Republicans making some gains? They see the enterprise zones or the opportunity zones, whatever you ever want to call it. They see the Tim Scotts of the world and others, and they say this is the way to grab that back. Even though Democrats came up with Jim Crow laws, it was Democrats uh, fighting to keep uh, slavery in uh, in our country during the Civil War. It was Democrats that destroyed Reconstruction. It was Democrats who came up with the KKK. They are concerned about losing the black vote. And is this their way of holding on to it? Or is that a leap? Is that too big a leap for Shelby Steele? No, it's not. Uh, that's that. They, this is their way of holding on to the black vote. Uh, keeping victimization alive, racist, keeping racism alive. Um, racism is their bread and butter. They love it. Uh, you can't forget the scenes of Maxine Waters rushing into Minneapolis the other day, but the night before the verdict, uh, desperate to find a, any hint of racism. Uh, failing to do so, but desperately looking for it. Uh, well, She's she's a, a trooper for that their cause. Uh, she she's a true believer, and uh, it's it's sad to see um, Democrats become that enthralled to their uh, their so, their power source. You know, I want uh, you to hear. I want you to listen to what she said last night. She was called out by the judge who worked for Amy Klobuchar. Not from just Kevin McCarthy, the judge, for doing something that could bring this case back to appeal. Listen to what she said last night about this. Cut 30. Uh, excuse me. Let's go to cut 30. 
And that's what the civil rights movement was all about. It was about activism. It was about confrontation. And a lot of people see that as being bad. And they tried to turn my words into something about violence. It's not about violence. Martin Luther King was about nonviolence. I am nonviolent. Confrontation was used in the sit-ins in the, for the civil rights legislation. The marches, the prayers, all of that's confrontation. Really? Do you buy that? No, I don't. <laughs> I don't buy that um, at all. She wanted that. She is probably brokenhearted that there wasn't a full-blown riot uh, last night. Uh, she definitely. They. This is their bread and their butter. Um, black anger, black suffering, uh, is is what justifies their role in politics in America. Nothing else. They bring nothing else to the table but this worn-out uh, lament over racism that doesn't exist anymore. There, it just isn't there. there. You know, it's like the army wants to march, but there's no enemy anymore. When King marched, there was an enemy. That's the difference. It's, that, it's really that simple. Yep. Uh, and it, it, it is, you know they're corrupt because there is no enemy. I go anywhere I want, any day I want. Nobody says a word. If anything, what I experience from white America is a sense of goodwill. People wish you well. They, they, I, I believe Americans want black Americans to do well. I believe that. Well, you should, because uh, everyone I've come in contact with feels the same exact way, and we don't know what planet, uh, what country... A lot of these activists are describing Dr. Shelby. And then seeing your movie, I found really heartening. You, you look at the Michael Brown, how he died, what he died, and the reality as opposed to what people were saying. Unfortunately, I'm out of time. But if you want to watch a documentary that understands from somebody that truly understands what's going on in America today because he's been active in America for now for, for 60 years, Dr. Shelby Steele, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. You got it. Martha McCallum's next. Don't go anywhere. Brian Kilmeade will be right back. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. Fast as three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everyone. Uh, it's always great to talk to uh, Shelby Steele about what's going on with race in America, a guy that was quite active in the 1960s whose uh, dad lived through uh, Jim Crow and segregation and everything like that and sees a huge difference now. Uh, his statement really sticks with me that he thinks uh, as a African-American, white people wish him well. And um, he says that's the America he knows. Martha McCallum here now, fresh off her appearing uh, with Bill Hemmer. And, and Dana Perino, uh, and Martha will be hosting the 3 o'clock show, The Story. Martha, welcome back. Hey, Brian. Not an unexpected verdict, but I just wondering if it was forced by the protest. Did they, did they really have a choice? Um, I'm going to assume that it was not forced. I'm going to assume that they watched the video, that they listened to both sides. Um, I see this as a demonstration of the way the justice system should work. Uh, I think it's unfortunate that politicians, even from the White House on down, uh, felt the need to speak out ahead of the verdict. If anything, they should be reassuring the country that we can have faith and confidence in this system. Uh, this is a system that is unique in the world. 
It does not always get it right. There's no doubt about that. We've seen uh, we've seen times when it got it very wrong. But um, you know, as one of our wise founding fathers said, it's you know, it, it's not the best system in the world. It's the best. It, it's the best. Pretty much the best system you can find in the world. I'm paraphrasing, but. Um, you know, this is we have to have respect for the rule of law. We have to have respect for these jurors. We have to, it's, it's a huge commitment to serve on a jury. I've done it myself. It does forge bonds between the people who go through it. And my guess is that if you asked any one of them if they felt that they were pressured, um, they would probably bristle a little bit at that. I think they took their responsibility very seriously. But if they saw what was happening for the last nine days for protests in Brooklyn, uh, Brooklyn Center. And then, you know. Yeah, look, I, look I'm, I'm not saying there's no doubt in my mind that every one of them thought to themselves, what happens when I go home, right? Yeah. I mean, what happens if we do? But the fact that it was so unanimous, you know, quickly all the way down, too. the fact that it came so quickly, Brian, tells me that this was not a situation where, you know, one or two people was ha- they had a very difficult time sort of bringing them over to the other side. This is a situation where they, they watched and they listened and they saw the videotape and, you know, they, they found him guilty on all three counts. Now, do they have things in the back of their mind about what happens when they go home? No doubt. Um, but I just think it's disrespectful to assume that they were so weak uh, mm. that they just sort of caved because they were afraid of what would happen after. Now, Martha, I paid for the next segment for you to be do the next segment. Are you going to still stay for the next segment? Yeah, well, we can talk about that in the break. Okay, fine. There's uh, a fee. I believe Martha McCown <laughs> will be here when we get back. I'll be we here. Have so much more to discuss. The new from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Some of our students white people? Yes. Okay, so we're demonizing white, we're demonizing white kids. Why don't you just say it? We are, I, we are using language that makes them feel less than um, for nothing that they are personally responsible for. So you were looking at, uh, you are listening to uh, uh, Paul Rossi. Paul Rossi is not renewing his contract to stay at this uh, school in Manhattan, this elite school in Manhattan. He's talking to the school principal about the biased education that these kids are getting and he's getting the principal basically by simply question and answer to admit everything that he wrote uh, in his letter. Martha McCallum's here. Martha, I, I'm getting encouraged that there's enough backlash after the letter we saw this weekend at Beardsley or whatever that name Barely. of that school is. Uh, Beardsley costs $54,000 a year old girls' school. He's got a 12-year-old there. He says he's had it. I'm pulling mm-hmm. it out. And then you have this Paul Rossi who says, I'm a teacher here. You can pull me off. I'm not renewing next year anyway. But this critical race theory is a joke. Kids are getting uh, brainwashed and indoctrinated. And then you see what's happening in Loudoun County in Virginia. Do you see a groundswell? I don't know if it's a groundswell yet, but at least we know that the parents across the country have woken up. (laughs) Talk about being woke. Uh, They have now also awakened to what's actually happening that the kids the things that their kids are saying at the dinner table about you know gee mom you know it turns out that we're all oppressors uh this is starting to to get some traction um there are organizations that are trying to you know give parents sort of community and a bit of cover to speak out together which i think is a really positive development here but the fact that parents are afraid to talk to administration that teachers are afraid to push back is 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 really just it's the saddest most heartbreaking thing i've seen in american education and add on top of that 
that, you know, when you look at the standards, when you look at where we rank in just math and science in, you know, among developed nations around the world, we're like 24, 27 in math and science. What are we doing? What are we doing? I mean, these kids are supposed to be getting an education. They're supposed to walk out of high school understanding the Civil War and World War II and the basics of American history, what happened in Vietnam. They don't know. A lot of them don't know any of those things, but they do know that they're an oppressor. Uh, they know that racism is a systemic threat to the United States of America. I know you just talked to uh, Shelby Steele. Um, he doesn't believe that's the case. And there are a lot of very bright people who don't believe that that's the case, but they're supposed to be silenced. They're not supposed to speak out. This is not, that's not America. That's not America. You know, a couple of things, you know, Bill Bennett sent me something today that uh, the National Review story, how Joe Biden is set to push critical race theory on U.S. schools uh, holistically, comprehensively. Mm -hmm. Now, you can't handle every single district and every single state, but that's going to be the top down push. So it looks like that program basically says that if you're applying for grants, you won't get the grant unless you you know, basically check all these boxes unless we understand that you appreciate the importance of teaching critical race theory and, you know, and all of its sort of surrounding tenets, basically that, you know, the country's racist, that the founding fathers created a racist society. And we stole Then you're this not going to get any grant money, yeah. right? It kind of, you know, in some ways reminds me of something that Joe Biden did as vice president, which was, um, you know, the the uh, letter that was sent to colleges across the country that said, if you don't take um, sexual harassment on your campus seriously, and we're not convinced that you take it seriously enough, we're going to cut off your funding. And in their in their mind, taking it seriously meant these mini kangaroo courts made up of college professors who would listen to one side of the story and decide whether or not someone was guilty. That That's not due process. So I guess here we go again. So Shelby Steele was just on with us. He says, right now, as a black man you can, or a black woman, you can accomplish anything in this country. And most people wish white people that he comes across wishes him well. And he said, listen, I came from the Jim Crow South. I was there when I couldn't walk into certain buildings in major cities, mm-hmm. even in Chicago. And he said, I was the one who couldn't use the bathrooms and had to go to the back of the bus. I remember what my dad went through, but I still was able to persevere, made it better for me. And I like to think I made it better for the next generation. What they're complaining about now is desperately holding on because that is power. And where does Joe Biden get off saying, wow, we're in America, America, systematic racism has always been a part of us? Really? You've had this job since 1975. I've never heard that speech. Yeah, Even Barack a, Obama. It's a stain on the soul of the country, I think. It's something along those lines. I'm, I'm paraphrasing what he said. I, does he really believe that is my question? Does he really believe that Americans are innately racist? Now, look, there are racists in America. Shelby Steele would, would say that as well. There are racists in America. But it is not the pervasive principle or the pervasive heart of this nation. I don't believe that. I think most Americans don't believe that. I think that, you know, there's a lot of institution around preserving the belief that that people are are held back unfairly and um you know, you look at the entire, you know, the entire welfare system. There's a, there's a lot of there's a lot baked into this cake that apparently some people feel um might be endangered if, if we do live in a, in a fair society that gives everyone an opportunity. So if you really want to do police reform, you have to have the police at the table. Of course. I, I mean, I've, I've never been through the academy. No, no polit- very few politicians, mm-hmm. um, you know, Hemings has perhaps. No politicians have really been through the academy. Like, how do you expect to reform the healthcare industry without healthcare experts? Mm-hmm. You could be a politician. You're not supposed to be an expert in those areas. But somehow they're, they're, uh, Rick Scott, excuse me, Tim Scott, is working with Cory Booker and uh, Congresswoman Bass 
there really is a sense that they want to get something done. But Trey Gowdy did not forget that the vice president was once a senator and who stood in the way of reform in the past. Cut 17. I hope that the the gaggle of media at the White House will ask Kamala Harris why she killed police reform last summer, Brett. I mean, keep in mind, Tim Scott met with her. He didn't meet with Joe Biden. He met with Kamala Harris and said, "Okay, what problems do you have with my bill? I'll give you an amendment for every problem you have. And she got up and would not negotiate because the issue is more important to her than the solution. That's his, that's his, I, I think he's right. Um, why wouldn't she? Why wouldn't? Why was there no way to get there? And as Trey points out, Tim Scott said endless amendments. I'm, I'm open to endless amendments. Okay, you guys tell me what you want in this room. Let's get something done on this issue. I think it broke his heart that that he couldn't get anywhere with that. And I'm and I give him a lot of credit that he's going back in uh, to try to make it happen. And good for Cory Booker um, and good for Congresswoman Bass, you know, but but please, you know, let, let's do something that's genuinely constructive. Right. Let's get the police to the table, as you say. Let's talk about the problems that exist. There are bad cops out there. There are bad people in every profession in America. And you do need to get rid of them. And they you do need to prevent a situation like what happened to George Floyd from ever happening again. That man could have been put in the back of that car and brought to the station. And that's what should have happened. There's Absolutely. no doubt about it. Yeah, and there's some theory is race had nothing to do with it. If that was a white guy, it would have been treated the same. And you might not like how Minneapolis did it, but maybe race was not involved. And that's what um, that's what has been bantered about. A couple of things. Just on this reform, it's not a matter of saying let's reform the police and this is how. If you don't bring them to the table, for example, you say no chokeholds. Well, who wants to choke? Why should cops be allowed to choke on an assailant? No, they're restraining holds. So you don't want to shoot them, Right. You don't, want to, you don't want to put your hands on them. But if you have to put your hands on them, you have to win that. If they're going to wrestle with you or attack you, you have to be able to restrain them and hold them. These are holds that are taught in the academy. That is to stop conflict, stop death and destruction, or else what do you have? A stun gun and a gun. So you've got to find out what holds work. You have jujitsu and martial arts experts saying this is how you do it. This is how you get people's attention. This is how you get it in the back of the car. That is an art. And number two is the no-knock warrants. Really? Now I have to do no knock. Now I can't do a no knock warrant. I have to announce to a guy on who has got an AK-47 on the other side of the door that I'm coming in. Ask the cops what you mean. Maybe there should be more uh, structure in how you request a no knock warrant. So uh, no knock warrant, so you don't end up in a Breonna Taylor situation. Mm-hmm. But to eliminate them in Washington without any input from those men and women in blue is nuts. I would agree. You know, my mind goes back to um, the 13-year-old boy who was killed in Chicago. And when you watch that tape, you watch those two police officers. One is a man, one is a woman. They're driving along in their car. They, they hear sh- that shots were fired in the neighborhood. They pull into up to an alley. They see the two guys running. They hop out. They get out of their cars, um, guns drawn. So they, they know that the, the people that they are are pursuing have guns because they know that there were shots fired. They have guns. There's four of them in the alley. It's terrifying when you watch that tape. When you watch that, you know, that body camera, you see that woman, um, you know, getting that guy down on the ground, putting his hands behind his back, handcuffing him while her partner is taking off down the alley. He, you know, doesn't know what he's about to encounter either. It, it is a very uh, terrifying position. Everybody wants to go home at the end of the night. It's tragic that that boy was killed um, in, in that interaction. The 17-year-old. I'm talking about the 13 year old. 13 year old. Yeah. Okay. Seventh grader um, who was who was killed. And, you know, the question is whether or not he had dropped the gun first or not. And we have the, the video and you see his hands yeah. go up, but he did have a gun up until a second before. Yeah. Um, but but my point is that, you know, these situations are so 
they're so fraught. They're so tense. And yes, Brian, you can't possibly wrap your head. I can't. I never went through police training. You have to know what they need to do and what they don't need to do, but they've got to get them in the room and have these conversations. And you, and also, you know, when somebody like Chauvin has, you know, the, the number of complaints against him that he has, you know, maybe we need a, a lower bar for removing somebody from the police force right. uh, when they've had that, that number of complaints against them. So um, we, we can do better. I, I know we Absolutely. can do better. Yeah. I mean, I have a problem with this. So Having said that, if you bring the cops to the table, for example, I hear with these, a lot of these small towns, the, the police officers have told me, a lot of these small towns don't have a lot of money to train. Mm-hmm. So you have this small town, you know, and, and they, have, uh, they have a few cops there, and they don't have a lot of money for the academy, and, and you go out and you see bad policing. It makes everybody look bad. But here in Nassau County, for example, yesterday there was a shooting in Hempstead. And then they didn't know who it was. They were able to find out who it was, track him down. He was a a black guy who just shot up a store. They were able to track him down, arrest him, and bring him in. That doesn't make the news. You know how hard it is? Excuse me. It was on my show yesterday. Right. Well, yeah. (laughs) But it doesn't make that. Like, no one talks about that. That's great. No, they did a great job. And there's a press conference today at 10 to say this is how you do it. Yeah. No, they did a great job. And you're right. They have very limited resources. And you know what else? They don't have a ton of people who are signing up to do the job these days. Um, Going to have even less Why now. would you want to? You know, you've got people retiring out of uh, precincts all across America and not a lot. We, we have to create a situation where we want good people to become police officers. We have to make it a job that you can do with integrity, right. with support um, from the top down. And we have to make sure that, that you know, Derek Chauvin's uh, are, are not among them. The Black Lives Matter New York chapter leader, I believe, is still Hawk Newsom. You were the yeah. first one to interview him. Listen to what he said last night. It was a mixture of violent and nonviolent protests that yielded this result. That's the bottom line. America doesn't listen to us when we march peacefully. I'm not saying people will be back in the street, but America must know that if you continue to allow us to be murdered in the streets without justice, we will raise hell in America. So... If you don't like the verdict mm-hmm. of the next one that isn't as cut and dry, perhaps, as Derek Chauvin seems to be, and I think it is. I mean, I watched the nine and a half minutes. I'm like, do we have to continue? But guess what? They feel they had success, guys like him, by showing violence and wrecking the dollar store and gutting the dry cleaner. That's what. That's the formula. Yeah. Well, they don't want to lose their narrative, right? So this jury, this trial, uh, satisfied – their expectation of what was going to happen, but they want to make it abundantly clear that they are not, they're not done. This doesn't change anything. They're still believe that, you know, they're going to go into the streets. You've heard lots of uh, individuals and I, they don't represent any large part of this country. Um, but these individuals, uh, Kim Brown, I think is her name on her YouTube channel the other night saying, you know, we could steal, we could rob, we could loot every single store from, you know, coast to coast. It would never make up for um, yeah. what has been done to us. So I don't know how you win that argument. I don't know how you, um, you know, I, I, I don't believe that most of America, white or black America, um, believes what these individuals believe. Um, and, and they certainly want their streets to be peaceful. They you, want the police to protect them in, you, in urban areas and, you know, rural areas across this country. Most people want the police officers to be a, a protection force. I can't, we, Martha McCallum, Brian Kilmeade can't undo what happened 150 years ago. And in the 1960s, which is uh, 70 years ago, 50, uh, uh, 60 years ago, but to not note the progress made 
and the things that have built in. And as Brit Hume said last night, there's no country that has worked harder and is uh, freer uh, on this, that works hard, mixed-race country, to do the things that we have done than, than the United States of America. And then when people say, well, we're on stolen land, really? You're going back to uh, 1492? You're going back to the 15th century? You're going back to Jamestown and saying we shouldn't be here? You have to leave then. And the Australians have to leave Australia because the Aborigines were there. And if you go back far enough, the British are going to have to leave the U.K. Yeah. You know, keep going. And yeah. we'll just go back to our—and we'll find out where we were—where man came from, where we, ha- we got the handoff from the dinosaurs, and we'll go back to that place. Can you work on that in your show? Yes, we will. We'll, we'll solve that problem. Um, yeah, I, I mean, the, the globe is a story of uh, of conquest uh, on every continent. Um, it's a it's not a pretty story. Our history all over the world is conquest and uh, people who were um, who were vanquished from territory all around the world. So yeah, that that that's a long way to go back. Wasn't our idea, but I'm glad I'm here. <laughs> uh, Martha, to uh, too, Martha's going to exclusively tell us who's on her show. She has not told any other show. Is this true? Or one other show you told? No, I haven't told anyone yet. Uh, you will tell me. No, don't even tell me in the break. After the break? Just save it for the people. All right, I'll save it for Back after the break. Challenging conventional thought and wisdom. You're with Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Do you believe the Republican majority in Georgia, do you think they're motivated by trying to suppress African-American vote? I have seen it happen sometimes that they are. Do you believe that's the motivation behind these laws? I believe the motivation behind certain provisions in SB 202 are a direct result to the increased participation of communities of color in the 2020 and 2021 elections. Do you think the Speaker of the the House, Jan Jones, is motivated by trying to limit the African-American voters in Georgia? Do you think that's I believe there is racial animus that generated those bills. I would not assume that that racial animus is shared by every person. Thank but you. if the result is that racial animus exists. Stacey Abrams really couldn't back up the Jim Crow 2.0 yesterday. Mm-hmm. Now with Jim Cornyn on, and she's not against voter ID, but not in all places. Martha McCallum's here. Martha, this thing doesn't stand up. I don't know. She Then she says, I had nothing to do with the boycott of Major League Baseball. And Jim Cor- uh, Senator Cornyn said, of course you are. You're the one who said that a million times. Yeah, uh, and that there this were reports racist. that you know at least her representatives were in those meetings, um, pressuring MLB to make that decision. I think that decision blew up in everybody's face um, in, in Georgia. It obviously was not the way to go. And you know, they're, they're here again. You have a classic example of you know the sort of messaging on something that goes before the event of the actual bill being passed. They were messaging at Jim Crow 2.0 before they even passed the bill, and they were still making changes in the bill and negotiating the bill and pulling things out that some people didn't like in order to make it a better bill. And, you know, but but it didn't matter because Jim Crow 2.0 was the label that was slapped on it. It was what came out of every single person's mouth who was talk, talking about it. And, you know, look at what it did to corporate America. These I, I'm still Home I'm Depot's so going to be boycotted now. Yes. I, yes. Home Depot will be, because they weren't they didn't come out. They said nothing. So it's like, you know, you're either with us or you're against us. You say nothing. That is not acceptable. Home Depot. So um, I, I'm amazed that that, you know, having covered um, American business and the markets for many years, I, I'm shocked at the open political nature of so many of these corporations. And they just, you just can't help but avoid the reality that it doesn't even sound like most of them read the bill. 
Martha, there's only 20 seconds left. You promised us an exclusive on what's yes. on the story. You know, we're going to talk to Joe Collins tonight. He's running against Maxine Waters in the uh, 43rd District, I believe, in California. He ran against her last time, and he's running against her again. So we're going to talk to him about what's going on in California, what he thinks about what she had to say, and Rand Paul on how many masks you have to wear after you're vaccinated. Thank you, Martha. Thanks, Brian. Great. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.